Hello, my Lonely Hour listeners. This is your host, Julia, and I'm here to tell you that we have a brand new season that you can find on Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcher.com slash lonelyhour to sign up now. You'll get access to ad-free episodes and archives of some of your other favorite shows, as well as exclusive bonus episodes of hit podcasts, early access to new releases, and over 300 stand-up comedy albums. You'll also have the option to donate to The Lonely Hour, which is the best way to support it. Thank you for helping us keep this show going. Christopher Knight is a man who lived completely alone in the woods of central Maine for 27 years. And when I say alone, I mean he literally said one word to one person sort of accidentally in 27 years. He lived in a camping tent in this thick stand of woods, not not in the wilds of Maine, but sort of in this rural central Maine. And spoke to no one, barely ever saw anyone, never saw the internet, never sent a letter, never made a telephone call, never spent any money for 27 years. And in fact, uh, he was going to probably spend his entire life hidden from the world, but he was arrested uh, one day, uh, breaking into a summer camp that was closed for the season. He was stealing things like hamburger meat and cheese. And he was he, he had become a legend, and, and then on the day of his arrest, the legend sort of proved itself to be real. Hey, it's Julia, and this is The Lonely Hour. You just heard from Michael Finkel, who has written a book called The Stranger in the Woods about Christopher Thomas Knight, a man who, at 20 years old, drove to the woods in central Maine and then left his car and the world, as most of us know it. He made himself some crude shelter, he stole food from vacation homes located nearby, he read stolen books, and he just lived alone, voluntarily, for 27 years. Everything I'm telling you, to the absolute best of my knowledge and professional fact-checkers' work, is is true. Now, Maine, as you probably know, has very long, quite brutal winters. And Chris Knight not only lived by himself in a camping tent, he never once lit a fire, which is hard to get your head around. Uh, There was not a charred piece of wood found at his site, anything like that. He thought that smoke might give his campsite away, and it it turns out that police officers had been looking for him on and off for, for a quarter of a century. So he, he lived out there and he suffered, but yet not only was he intelligent, you know, why did he stay out there? So he went sort of on a whim. He just felt this sort of very strong tug to leave it, leave the world behind. He abandoned his car, which is a pretty um, robust statement. That wasn't just a whim. It was just like a, it wasn't, it was like, I'm really going for this. And then the reason why he stayed is because he liked it. He, re- despite the suffering, despite the cold weather, despite not lighting a fire, he really, really, found a deep sense of satisfaction and contentment and and he felt more content to be by himself in the woods than he ever felt outside in society and that's the reason why he kept staying.
It makes me think a chip must be missing. I mean, studies have been done about the mental and ultimately physical illnesses that stem from solitary confinement, right? Like the brain starts to decline in ways in a matter of weeks. Chris was out there for 27 years. He was only examined by one uh, professional that that I know of, and uh, the diagnosis was possibly... Asperger's, which sort of makes sense, which is actually no longer a real diagnosis, but a, but an autism spectrum uh, sort of diagnosis, which seems to make sense until you poke into it. And then there was something called schizoid personality disorder, which has nothing to do with schizophrenia. So they, there were two possible psychological diagnoses placed on him. And I examined them both and even talked to several professionals in the field. And of course, they gave me the warning that, you know, they couldn't really make any accurate diagnoses without meeting Chris Knight. But after they read uh, materials on Chris Knight's story, the, the almost all the experts said, you know, it, you could never put a label of autism or autism spectrum disorder on Chris Knight. His ability to plan ahead, his ability to survive completely on his own is like almost unheard of. So they rejected the Asperger's. And then schizoid personality disorder, which has a funny name, is basically someone who knows, unlike autism, some autistic people would like to interact with other people, but sort of don't really understand how complicated it is and and sort of muff it up. Uh, People with a schizoid personality disorder sort of understand how to interact with people but have decided not to. That seemed to fit a little bit better with Chris, but there were many, many reasons um, why no label fit him. Uh, He's almost an outlier in every way, shape, and form. Even, Even ancient human beings that lived in Maine never lived by themselves and hunted and fished by themselves. There was always groups, and uh, the winters there are impossible to survive without help. He needed to find a spot. If he really wanted to be all by himself in Maine, he needed to find a spot where he would be able to get food. And most hermits throughout history, uh, the Desert Fathers, the famous groups of hermits, you know, had people deliver them food or bring them food or check up on them. But Knight wanted this sort of very strict solitude in which not even one person knew where he was. Not one. It was very important to him that he was completely anonymous. And I think he needed to find a spot where um, he could, to put it bluntly, where he could steal in the most unoffensive way possible. You know, he had this whole code of stealing. He wasn't proud of uh, the fact that he had to steal. In fact, he was, as soon as he was caught, he immediately confessed and expressed great shame. But he had this rule that he would, if it was a second home, and he made no damage, and he only took things of small monetary value, he allowed himself to do this. Chris Knight often compared himself with animals, and he, and he did that in a favorable, he meant that as a compliment to himself. Uh, you know, He tried to get fat uh, before winter started. Like most animals, he was in a sort of semi-hibernation state during winter to conserve energy, like most animals. And also, we talked about efficiency. Uh, I've spent most of my life, as I mentioned, in Montana. When I leave my garbage cans out during a certain time of year when the bears are just coming out, they will pull apart my garbage can and eat my food. And why wouldn't they just go collect berries? Well, the answer is that it's a lot more efficient to grab my garbage and eat a bunch of food right there than it is to collect berries. And Chris Knight realized it was so much more efficient uh, to break into people's home and steal their peanut butter than it was to gather berries and fish through ice and hunt deer, which will almost certainly get you caught and 
will almost certainly lead to you to starve to death very, very quickly. And so uh, he had to make a few compromises in order to reach this sort of uh, hermitage that he envisioned. It had to be where it was. I don't think it would have worked anywhere else, not Alaska, not New York City, and, and you know all places in between. It was this perfect combination between very dense woods and a lot of uh, very seldom used homes. A lot of opportunities to take food and not a lot of opportunities to get caught. That doesn't exist in very many places in the world. So how exactly was he able to survive? Did he grow up in a family of able woodsmen? Yeah, um, before Chris Knight slept for 10,000 consecutive nights in a tent, he never had spent the night once in a tent. However, he grew up in an interesting family. He has uh, four older brothers and a younger sister, and uh, they were the type of family where all the kids learned how to fix everything from automobiles to uh, electrical to plumbing. They were very self-sufficient. They learned how to hunt and fish, and they would read Shakespeare at night. When he left the world, however radically and unprepared it may seem, it sort of thrilled him. It, it used, it challenged all his problem-solving and intellect to the maximum. He also was blessed with extremely, um, with extreme agility and athleticism. And I think all those things combined to allow him, and I'm sure there was a great degree of luck, to allow him to not only survive, but to thrive. Now, you remember, of course, the story uh, Into the Wild, where Chris McCandless went to Alaska. A lot of people compare these two stories. McCandless did not survive four months. He died. He made a couple of mistakes. He starved to death. Chris Knight walked out of the woods after 27 years, strong as an ox. Um, it's, uh, it is confounding. He, he saw this patch of forest. He st everything was, everything was self-taught. He, he got better and better at everything. He was hoping that no mistakes he made, like, you know, you don't suddenly learn how to walk through a dense forest silently that takes years, if not decades, but he was smart enough to know when to practice, which is probably midweek winter time, uh, or when there's no one around and he perfected or actually never perfected. He honed all of his skills so precisely and you have to remember, these were crimes that sort of fell in this middle range. You know, somebody stealing your Stephen King novel and your flashlight is just never going to rise to the level of crisis for the police. And so there was some luck that, you know, yeah, police look for him here and there. But, it, you know, there was never this, like, task force to solve the mystery of who's stealing somebody's hamburger meat. So it's, uh, again, the story is literally unbelievable and yet at the same time completely true. In April 2013, Chris was arrested for burglary and theft, and he was transported to the Kennebuck County Jail in Augusta. By this point, he was locally famous. People referred to him as the North Pond Hermit, and complaints to the police were mounting. Because those who had saved up good money to buy summer cabins in the area didn't feel safe knowing someone habitually broke into them. However nonviolent everyone knew the hermit was. And so efforts to find him increased. When Terry Hughes of the Maine Warden Service handcuffed Chris, he immediately surrendered. He wasn't proud of stealing, but it was the most efficient way to feed himself. Had he not been caught, though, he would have continued to steal food and soap and clothing and whatever other bare necessities a human being needs for survival until the end. He told Michael he never would have left the woods voluntarily. I took my turn in the grand history of people asking the hermit, what does it all mean? And I asked him, of course, what does it all mean? And there were a few things that he described to me. 
And um, one of the things that really struck me is how intricately uh, connected extreme suffering and extreme joy are. And again, many hermits throughout history who have written of their experiences have said that uh, within, in the middle of suffering is joy. And I asked Chris Knight, what was the most magical? What was the most mystical? What was the moments that struck you as being the depth of profoundness? And he said to me, it was during the absolute coldest time of winter. Often he would have very little food. Like I said, he never lit a fire, so he was always very cold. It's very dark in Maine. The sun sets really early. And he said there were these moments where, I think he described the earth as like hard frozen. The forest is completely locked in Arctic silence. There's not even a bird or a whisper of wind. And he's sitting there in his tent and it's very cold. And it's like, there's this silence. And what he said to me was even more than silence, what he liked was, as he said, stillness. And he said, there's something profound about the stillness of the middle of winter where you could literally hear your own heartbeat. And he would lay in his tent halfway suffering and halfway ecstatic. And it, the way he described that to me, I, I couldn't really get my head around how someone could do that, but it was uh, clearly this sort of mystical state that he reached. And it's, it's, it stays with me. It stays with me always. Did he ever get lonely out there? Chris Knight said to me uh, in no uncertain terms that he was never for an instant lonely or bored. He said that those were not terms that really he really could even understand. He said to me something to the effect of, if you like solitude, then you're never really alone. He said to me something to the effect of, he felt almost the opposite of loneliness. He said he felt extraordinarily and utterly connected maybe to everything else in the world, in the universe. You know, he said something to the effect of, you know, it wasn't really a, so much of a, a, of a retreat into the woods with a, as, as a communion with the natural world. I think some of the writers on uh, Solitude call it boundary confusion, meaning you're not really sure where yourself, your body ends and the rest of the world begins. And that seems like a very odd thing for me to say, but if you read it 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 times, if you read it from writers in ancient China from, uh, you know, a thousand BC, and you read it from people like Jack Kerouac in Desolation Angels, and you read it in Walt Whitman, and you read it from, uh, you know, in, in, in Rainer Maria Rilke, uh, the Austro-German poet, and you read it, you know, in Octavio Paz, the Mexican poet, you know, across cultures and times, everyone's saying the same thing, then there's got, that's, that's pretty profound. And when Chris Knight would say something like that, I would get goosebumps. Uh, I would, I could, he didn't look at me, but I could look at him not looking at me. Um, I could read his face and the joy he expressed about his time out there and the profound depths that he went. I mean, he experienced some things that none of us ever will come a million miles from experiencing this sort of complete 
and utter solitude of not just months, not just years, but literally decades. And we, we probably wouldn't want to experience it, but it was such a, a deep and powerful thing that to watch him try and describe it, and not just clinically, but passionately, and not just passionately, joyously, frankly, from time to time made me a little jealous. So, Michael, why did he talk to you? Like, how did you, how did you come into contact? How did you convince him to open up? I read a small story in the paper. Uh, I was living in Montana. It took place in Maine. That's a long way away. And um, it, it struck me very hard. And for the next, every day for the next week, I was looking for an update. What did he have to say? What's he going to say? And all these journalists were descending in radio and TV and documentary film team. And then a, a month goes by and Chris... Knight, the hermit, says nothing. He doesn't say a single word publicly. He's, he's at the Kennebec County Jail in central Maine, and he says not a single word. And eventually, of course, you know, all the journalists go home and the documentary team packs up and leaves, and there's nobody there. And I couldn't stop thinking about him. And, you know, one night, uh, my kids went to sleep early. My, my wife went to sleep. It was, it was in the... It's my favorite time. Some people are morning people. I'm a night person. And it was just like this very calm house. And I was just like, I, I got to get, I got to scratch this itch. I got to get this off my mind somehow. And uh, I felt, you know, a lot of journalism is, there's not like a manual for how to do things. It's like, it's just a gut. And I was like, this is a guy who wants a letter written, pen, paper, envelope, stamp. This is not an email. This is not a typed thing. This is not a text message to his lawyer. This is, I could tell. And I just, or I could feel, let's put it that way. And I just took out a pen and a piece of paper one night and without no rough drafts, not really even preparing, I just wrote what I felt. I told him immediately that I was a journalist. This wasn't like a, just like a friendly letter. This had a, it had a reason I wanted to talk to him. And I photocopied a couple of articles that I had written. And I even, uh, ordered off of uh, Amazon, I believe, uh, my, my my previous book to send to him in the jail. I figure, hey, what do I have to lose? He's rejected so many other people. He might as well read a bunch of my writing. Maybe he'll like it. And if he doesn't, you know, no no harm, no foul. And I, 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 you know, I just sent it off to the Kennebec County Jail and went to bed that night and thought, well, you know, at least I wrote what I felt. And uh, it was very quick. It was like less than 10 days later that there was a return letter in my mailbox. And, uh, you know, I remember it vividly. It was a white envelope, but it had a big stamp on the back, rubber stamp on the back, said, you know, warning, uh, this is from the, the county jail, contents have not been evaluated, open with your own risk. And then I, you know, on the front, the return address said Chris Knight and the address of the jail. And I opened it up and it was a extremely short letter, um, maybe three or four paragraphs, but I knew reading from reading his first letter, number one thing that jumped out at me, wow, this guy is really has a beautiful way of using language. And, you know, as a writer and as a journalist, you know, that really struck my heart. It was like this, if you want to do an experiment, you know, go live by yourself uh, for 27 years and read a couple thousand books and see what happens to your vocabulary and your way of using language. It becomes this sort of old-fashioned, he, he had his like own dialect of English, but yet it was written English and it was sort of beautiful and poetic. And then secondly, I knew immediately that he had uh, quite an amazing story to tell. And 
for reasons that aren't 100% clear, it might just be as simple as that maybe no other journalist hand wrote a letter. Maybe it's just that simple. And also a letter is really soft. It's not like I knocked on his door, showed up at the jail or bothered him. Like I sent him a letter. All he had to do was throw it in the garbage if he didn't want to respond. There was no, he made the decision. And I felt that that was like as as unintrusive as possible, just a letter. I know he had received many, many of them. Um, and so his decision to respond was very gratifying. And we exchanged, that was how we started our relationship was by exchanging letters. And I decided to take a risk and I, I flew from Montana to Maine and went to the Kennebec County Jail and went to the uh, visiting booth and just checked in as a visitor. And I really had no idea if Chris Knight would agree to see me. But again, as with the letters, the decision was entirely up to him. Many had people had come to visit and all he had to do was say, no, thank you. And I sat in the waiting room and wondered if I had flown across the country for nothing but needed to know, just like writing a letter, just needed to know. And he did agree to meet with me. And especially the first meeting was extraordinarily uncomfortable. He, Chris Knight, no surprise, I'm sure, does not interact with others smoothly. He doesn't like eye contact. In fact, uh, for the first meeting, we sat there silently for several minutes. And if you ran about, if you ran just say 60 seconds of silence on your on your show, Julie, I, I challenge you to do that. You would have a lot of people just tapping their computer and wondering what's going on. A, a minute of silence is a long time. When he finally felt comfortable talking to me, it's funny because the longer we were silent, the more uncomfortable I became. I'm like scratching my head and wondering what look is on my face. And, you know, in the other side of the visiting booth, we were divided by a thick pane of plexiglass. Uh, we never actually shook hands or anything. Uh, we talked over old-fashioned phone receivers, like like you're probably like your image of a jail visiting booth uh, through a piece of glass. And, you know, the more we were silent that first time, the more comfortable Chris became. And when he found this sort of equilibrium, he started talking and he was so generous. He started telling me his life story and we ended up doing nine one-hour visits in the jail in which he told me everything from his youth growing up to the first day that he left the woods to how he survived winters to what he loved to do for uh, recreation. And um, the state of Maine was... I think extraordinarily fair and lenient and understanding. He only spent seven months in jail and was released with a very, very strict probation that if he broke, he would be given up to seven years in the state penitentiary. And he he observed he observed his probation to the letter. He, there was no never any any doubt that he would uh, obey it. He was you know, he's he's actually not a real criminal. He's just he's just an extreme introvert. So he's been released now, right? And he's living with his family? In a weird way, being released from jail was more traumatic than being put in jail. He realized that once he was quote-unquote free, he was not free at all. He was part of society. He had to check in with his counselor. And, you know, the, the things that he hated about the world before he left, which was that every human interaction just seemed stilted and weird and, you know— Two people talking to each other is never that easy. If you, if you if you keep track of a conversation, it's like a tennis game. There's like, there's 
you know, there's subtle sarcasm and, and, and innuendo and nonverbal cues. It's difficult. And he, he just couldn't do all that. And when I met him after he was released from jail, he was so upset that he said to me that the only thing he could think of to make himself truly free was to commit suicide. And it wasn't just an idle threat. He had a specific idea, which was hypothermia, which was to walk deep into the woods, underdressed on the next very, very cold day, which wasn't going to be for several months, and sit there and die of hypothermia. And if you do any research on such a macabre thing, it's actually, according to the research, one of the better ways to maybe kill yourself. And of course, I was extraordinarily upset. And I'm very grateful to report, happy to report that he did not go through with this, this threat, nor do I believe he will. It's been two years now since he made such a threat, and uh, I think he's carved out a living that is okay. Again, never going to be as fulfilling as it was, but he'll. He, I believe he's going to keep on keeping on. He is a, he is a survivor and will survive to, to the best of my belief. He certainly lived a more solitary life than most of us. So is there something we can learn from him? Michael, for one, says Chris taught him to manage his time better, quoting Socrates, beware the barrenness of a busy life. Perhaps if we all did a little less, we might be more fulfilled. Do you have questions for Michael? You can email them to me at lonelyhourpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at lonelypodcast. Or you can find The Lonely Hour on Facebook. And sign up for the newsletter at thelonelyhour.com and you will be the first to know when the next episode drops. Until then, enjoy yourself. This episode was produced at The Listening Booth with executive producer Terrence Mickey, producer Chris McLeod, and me, assistant producer Carrie Ann Thomas. The listening booth. Certainly make me think twice. There's a story inside.